you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, we're uh, walking through the book of Ephesians, so if you have the, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are at. <clears throat> and uh, this morning, we're actually shifting into a brand new section, which is really exciting. Uh, the section goes, starts in verse 7 and goes down through verse 12. So again, just some quick overview of context. Uh, verse 3 down to verse 14 is the blessing section in the book of Ephesians, and it's split into three key sections. Uh, verse 3 down to verse 6 is the blessings we have in the Father. Uh, verse 7 down to verse 12 is the blessings we have in the Son. And verses 13 and 14 is the blessings we have in the Spirit. And what's interesting is, and we keep saying this, but every single blessing that Paul is talking about from verses 3 down to verse 14, every single blessing finds its fulfillment in one single place, which is Jesus Christ. And what's really neat, uh, and this is just more for kicks and giggles, but if you were to look this up in the Greek, verses 3 down to verse 14 is one long sentence. So in your English translation, my guess is there are a whole bunch of periods and commas and that kind of stuff. But what Paul is doing in verses 3 down to verse 14 is giving one long exhortation saying, hey, there's this blessing plus this blessing. And he's, it's like he's not taking a breath. He just keeps going and going and going and going and going, which is quite amazing. So we're entering into this new section, which is the blessings in the Son, speaking of Jesus specifically. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read verse 7 and 8 with you. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Let me read that again. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Uh, Paul is saying that one of the blessings that you and I have in Jesus Christ is that we, it has been lavished, it has been dumped upon us by the grace of God that we have forgiveness and redemption. Now, before we even talk about what forgiveness and redemption are, and my guess is you at least have some aspects since these are words that we talk about all the time in church, but before we even get to describing what forgiveness and redemption is, the only way to properly understand forgiveness and redemption is seen in light of the problem itself and why we need forgiveness and redemption. So just as a quick overview, just almost as a reminder, you realize that all of us need forgiveness and all of us need redemption. Why? Because we seriously have a problem (laughs) called sin. In fact, let me just give you a couple of verses here. But Paul in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. And by the way, that word none in the Greek, you'll never guess what it means. None. That there are none righteous. Not a single person is righteous. That there is not one righteous. So you can't say, well, I'm the exception. So there is no exceptions. There is none righteous. No, not one. Later on in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And again, you'll never guess what that word all in Greek means. It means all. Which means every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is no exceptions here. Romans 6, 23 Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, And you know what a wage is, right? You go down to your job, and you work, you know, this many hours, 
And then you say, hey, I've worked this many hours. I demand a paycheck. Why? Because I worked it. So, hey, I, I get a wage. Do you realize that sin has a wage? That, hey, if you participate in sin, there's a demand of payment on that sin. Well, what's the payment on the sin? Death. Which is not very fun at all, obviously. So you get this idea in the book of Romans that, hey, all of us, every single human, has, has had this issue called sin. And outside of Jesus, there is no righteous. There's no righteousness. Hey, you, you cannot claim, well, I'm an exception. Well, I do a lot of good things. Good for you. But that doesn't help you. Why? Well, even Isaiah 64, 6 talks about this idea that the very best that you can pull off, hey, the greatest talent that you can produce, the best out of your own wisdom and strength and ability and, and whatever else, you realize is still filthy rags. So you cannot produce your own righteousness. You cannot produce your own goodness. You cannot produce your own salvation. You, you cannot live out the life you are called to live outside of Jesus. Because none of us are righteous. Hey, we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it doesn't take very long to, to recognize that we all have a problem. For example, you come into the Ten Commandments, and you start looking down the list, and you're like, oh, well, I have no other gods before me. And you're like, well, that's, that's good. I don't have a Buddha statue, so I'm, I'm fine. I got that one covered. But you realize there's a lot of stuff in our culture today that is, our, that is a god. We just don't call it a god. Right back in the old days, uh, like the time of Paul, uh, you had this little statue, right? And it was like a fertility statue, and you'd pray so you'd have babies. Or you'd go down, and you'd have like the sports statue, right? And you would go, and you'd, you'd pray to the sports statue so that your gladiator would win or whatever. Well, we don't have the little statues, but we still function the same way. Why? Look at our sports-obsessed culture. What do we do? We worship. We all come down to this big arena, and we all raise our hands. And we're screaming. Why? Because we want our team to win. What is that? That's worship. Right? Uh, look, at, look at the entertainment industry. What are we doing? We were binging on Netflix. Why? Oh, this is so fun. I'm not disagreeing with that. Little House on the Prairie is great to watch as a marathon. I'm I'm nothing against marathons. But you realize that when I'm just so saturated in the entertainment culture, what is that? That, That's setting something before God. So even though I may not have a Buddha statue, our culture has this propensity to put entertainment or sports or success or money or whatever as our God before God. Uh, You start walking through the list and you 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 hear stuff like, Do not lie! You, re- you realize, this is such a crazy thought, that it only takes one lie, just one little lie, to be a liar and break the commandment. And even one little transgression of the law is enough to send us to hell for eternity. And that is a crazy, crazy notion. Not, not the fact that, it, that we demand justice, but it's just, we're not talking about the severity or, well, once you get to 100 lies, well, then you're in trouble. This is one lie demands eternal punishment. Uh, Jesus took this thing to another level and said, hey, uh, the old said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. See, back in the day, it was like, well, I'm, I'm, I really hate this person, and I know God said don't kill them. So what I'll do instead is I'm going to take their picture, put it on the back of my door, and throw darts at it. So I'm going to think about it all the time, but I'm not actually going to do the deed. Jesus says that's just as bad as, as murder, right? He said stuff like, 
Uh, in the old, it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust, lust is just as bad as the adultery thing. So you begin to recognize that all of us have a problem. Why? Because we have broken, we have broken the commandments. And not just probably one, we have broken many of the commandments. And yet one transgression is enough for eternal punishment. We have a problem, folks. A serious problem. Uh, Paul in Galatians 5, right before the fruits of the Spirit, he makes this list. And I'll just read this to you, but Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul is making a list of the flesh. And he says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious, which are these. Adultery, sexual immorality, impurity, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, rage, selfishness, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. And I warned you, as I previously warned you, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you say, well, it's, it's just one little tiny sin. It's not that big of a deal. Paul says, what are you talking about? Th- these things, this is huge. Because one little sin is enough to send us to hell for eternity. So this is not about the amount or the quantity of sin. This is the fact that if you have sin at all in your life, you have a serious problem. Which is what? Well, I have this sin nature that is producing sins, as we talked about last time. But that reality is causing me to have judgment. Do you realize we need salvation? We need forgiveness and redemption. So if you at least recognize the fact that we all have this problem, it makes this statement of Paul and Ephesians all the more richer and sweet. Why? Because God has lavished upon you forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that here we were, living our own life, shaking our fist in God's face, living in rebellion and in in our sin. And what did God do? In the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of, hey, I want it my way, God, it says, God died for us. That he was longing in the midst of my sin to have relationship and intimacy with me. That in the midst of me saying, I'm going to spit on your face. I have no desire to have relationship with you. What was he doing for me? Going, oh, I want you in. That, hey, I, I want to bring you in. I, I want to have redemption. I want to. So here I am. I'm drowning in sin. Here I am, destined for hell. Here I am just having no hope in my own abilities. And what does God do? God, despite my rebellion and despite my sin toward him, is bringing and making an avenue so that he can purify my heart and bring me into relationship and intimacy. But here's the question. What can a righteous, holy, perfect God what kind of relationship can that individual have with something that is unrighteous and full of sin? Well, none. Because what, has, what, what does holiness have to do with unholiness? What, how, what kind of relationship can light have with dark? Hey, hey what, kind of, what kind of intimacy can a holy, righteous God have with an unrighteous, unholy human? Well, there, there is no possibility. So something has to change in the human in order for God to have a relationship. Well, what has to change? Well, that individual has to be made pure and spotless. So what does God do? This is an interesting thought. But you recognize that God couldn't merely just speak our sin away. And I don't understand how all this works. But you realize that sin, me having sin in my life, demands atonement. 
It demands forgiveness. And what is forgiveness? Well, let me say it this way. What does the aspect of forgiveness demand? It demands blood. And God set this whole thing up, and it is so absolutely beautiful. But you realize that God couldn't just merely look at my sin problem and merely speak this thing away. Something has to die to atone for my sin. Well, I'm unholy. I'm unrighteous, which means I cannot atone for my own sin because it has to be a pure and spotless sacrifice. And something has to die. Uh, Leviticus 17.11 reminds us that life is in the blood. And if you look at the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, it's intriguing that why was there a sacrifice year after year after year after year after year? Well, because atonement had to be made for sin. So a perfect sacrifice of blood had to be given. Why? Because a perfect life has to be the substitute for the sin. So here's this Old Testament sacrificial system, and what's interesting is, though they had all these you know, bulls and goats and sheep and stuff year after year after year that were sacrificed, it was temporary. It was not an eternal atonement. And so you come into a passage like Hebrews 10, and I'll just read this to you, but Hebrews 10, uh, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews is looking at that old system saying, wow, it's not that this was bad, God set this thing up, but it was pointing to a greater reality, which was in Jesus Christ. So listen to what Hebrews 10, 1 through 3 says. Uh, it says, For the law is a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things. It could never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year after year, perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer be conscious of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is an annual reminder of sins, for it is not possible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. In other words, it's not that the Old Testament covenant was bad. It's just it wasn't sufficient for, for actual atonement. Why? It was just merely covering something. It was pointing to a, a necessity that we need something greater, which was Jesus Christ. Which is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 said, uh, this is a whole bunch of verses from chapter 9, but the writer says, But Christ, when he came as high priest of the good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, neither by blood or goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So you have the writer of Hebrews saying, wow, it's not that the old covenant was bad, but the old covenant was pointing to a greater reality, saying that our sins demand a sacrifice if we're going to have a relationship with God. And blood and goats was, hey, that was great in the old, but it was a temporary thing. It just consistently reminded us of the fact that we had sinned. But when Jesus showed up, hey, no longer do we need to offer the bloods of goats and sheep and calves. Why? Because we had an eternal sacrifice in, in the fact that God himself came and bore our sin and was the perfect sacrifice. Him who knew no sin, who had no sin within him, was the perfect sacrifice for my sin. And my sin demanded a sacrifice. It demanded atonement. And it demands the cross. So we see this phenomenal reality that here I have a problem called sin. And I cannot have relationship with the holy God. Why? Because I am unholy. So what does God do? He makes the avenue. He becomes the sacrifice 
so that I can be redeemed and forgiven so that I can have a relationship with himself. So if you take that idea then and come back into our passage, Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of, his, of sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. That here I am, have a sin problem, and what does God do? Oh, he lavishes us with all of his grace in the fact that by the blood of Jesus, I get to experience forgiveness and redemption. Isn't that awesome? Uh, the word there, forgiveness, uh, has this idea of pardoning. Uh, I, I, have this, I have this issue, I come before a court, and the judge says, hey, I'm going to remove the case. I'm only going to throw out the case, I'm going to pardon you, and you are not going to have to face the punishment that your crime demands. That I'm actually going to remove all of that. I'm going to wash, wash your account clean, and it's not going to be held against you. Do you know how exciting that is? Why? Because my account with God is long. <laughs> I mean, I have all these sins that I have done. I have this nature within me that, is just, that has this propensity for rebellion. And what does God do? He changes that. So that I no longer have the propensity for rebellion. I actually want to obey him. I want to have a relationship with him. And he takes all my sins and all the deeds that I have done. That is all against him. And he goes, oh, I'm going to pardon you. I am not going to put upon you the judgment that your crimes demand. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wipe that clean. In fact, scripture has this whole idea that it's not like he just puts a little stamp on it and says, oh, forgiven. That he actually like erases this whole list. And he sees it no longer. Now, I don't know how that works practically. But he does not keep this in front of his own eyesight. That he, he does not hold this against you. Why? It's been forgiven. It truly has been pardoned. His blood has like covered your sins. And now God cannot see the sins any longer. Isn't that an amazing reality? Well, let me just read you a bunch of passages. I just love this. <clears throat> uh, Psalm 103, verse 12. says, As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And you recognize that in the, in, the, in the realities that if you have true east, it'll never reach true west. It's not like a globe that eventually east becomes west, right? That if you throw something perfect east, it'll forever continue east, and it'll never reach west. And so here's this idea that as far as the east is from the west, that is how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, 17 says, you have kept my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. He's really taken my sin, and he's throwing it behind himself in this idea of, I'm not going to be looking at it. That that's not what I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to view you through your sins. I'm going to view you through my son. I just love that idea. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, says the Lord, am he who blots or wipes out all of your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says, for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. I will literally blot them out. I will remove them. Nehemiah 9.17 says, You are a God who is ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in kindness, and you did not forsake them. Do you realize that he is ready to pardon? He is gracious and merciful. Uh, Daniel 9.9 says, To the Lord who belongs mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Micah 7.19, I love this, 
Uh, Micah 7.19 says, He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread down our iniquities and cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I love what Corey Tim Boom said about that passage. He said, God has cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea, and then he hangs a little sign that says, no fishing allowed. Isn't that awesome? In other words, don't drag it back up. I love that. So you get this idea all throughout Scripture that God is not holding our sin against us. Why? He has pardoned. He has forgiven. That, that he has only taken our list of sins and he's only washed it by his blood. He has taken that sin nature and he has changed our sin nature so that we don't have this propensity for rebellion. That we actually desire to love and worship him. That we long to walk in perfect holiness. That we can be all that we have, are called to be. Why? Because we've been given the grace and the mercy of God to really walk forward in his holiness. That you and I do not have to live in sin. That you and I can be triumphant in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have Jesus. Do you realize how crazy it is? If all of that is true for me to keep living in sin, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 has this idea that I'm a brand new creature in Christ. I'm a new creation. It's this idea that a line has been drawn in the sand, and who I once was, I no longer am. That, yeah, I may look the same and smell the same and may talk the same, but I am not the same. Why? Because there's something that has changed within me, and I no longer am that old person. That sin no longer defines me. That I'm defined by the life of Jesus Christ. That how do I, how do I reason? I reason through Jesus, not through my sin. I do not reason from my past. I do not reason from, well, this is how I used to be. I do not reason from, well, I used to be an, an, a drug addict. I do not reason from, well, the fact that I used to murder people every other weekend. I do not reason from the fact of any of that kind of stuff. Why? Because that's not who I am. That I have been changed. I have been forgiven. And there's been a line that's drawn in the sand. And the only way you can define my life is that I'm a brand new creation. I'm a new creature. I am not the same person. No wonder they call this good news. Why can we say that? Because we've been forgiven. And the moment I experience forgiveness, hey, I, I have the opportunity to live on a whole nother level that I could never have lived before. Why? Because I'm no longer bound by sin. I'm now bound to Jesus Christ. So Paul says, hey, you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But not just forgiven, you have been redeemed. Oh, that word redeemed, oh, I love this. How the word redeemed has this idea of being set free from captivity through the payment of a ransom. Uh, this wealthy man had a daughter, and someone came and grabbed his daughter and, and stole her away and sends the rich man a ransom note. And the ransom note says, pay us $5 million or we're going to hurt your child. What is a man going to do? Well, he's going to pay the ransom. Why? Because of the love that he has for his daughter. He says, no price is too much. I'm willing to pay the ransom, and I'm going to free my daughter from the shackles of her imprisonment. Why? Well, because I love her. Well, what is it going to cost? Some sort of a ransom. Do you realize that you have been redeemed? Well, what does that require? Ransom. Uh, you, go, you turn to the Old Testament, and to hear these Israelites, they were slaves in, in chains to the Egyptians. They were captive. And there was a ransom that was paid to get the 
Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. I mean, it took them all to get there, but hey, there's a ransom paid. What was, what was the ransom? It was the blood of a lamb. That it was through the blood of a lamb, a ransom was paid. And Egypt let go. There was shackles that were set free so that the Israelites could literally walk out of Egypt. Do you realize the same thing is true about in our life? We've been shackled to sin. That, that we, we have, we're, we're enslaved to Egypt. Well, what is it going to take? A ransom. And God says, I'm literally going to go as the ransom itself. And as the perfect Passover lamb, I am going to give myself. And my blood is literally going to set free the captives that were held by sin and death. And you and I have been redeemed. Meaning what? We were shackled. We were imprisoned. And we have been set free through the ransom of the blood of Jesus Christ. That it was because of his life and death and resurrection that we get to experience freedom in Christ Jesus. That no longer sin has a claim on our life. No longer do you have to be held by the tyranny of, of sin and junk. Hey, no longer do you have to live in this system. Why? Because I have been redeemed. Shackles have come off my wrist, and I get to walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that's what Jesus said he came for? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is explaining why he came to earth, and he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? He says, I'm the ransom. I've only come to redeem my people. And again, if you want to study this out, I really would encourage you to study the book of Ruth. Because the whole book of Ruth is this phenomenal picture of a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, who is coming to rescue and redeem this person named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's an incredible picture of this idea of redemption. And the Old Testament book of Ruth is a foreshadow. It's a big finger pointing to the realities of what you and I have in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Oh, so awesome. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this. For you know that you were not redeemed from your vain way of life, inherited from your fathers with perishable things like sil silver or gold. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Uh, let me read this in the ESV. I like how ESV translates 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Uh, the ESV says it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hey, you were not redeemed by some activity that you have done. Hey, you were not redeemed by your intellect. You are redeemed by God himself who came as the perfect sacrifice. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> uh, Romans chapter 6 is quite a, quite a passage. <clears throat> and if you think about all that we just talked about, the fact that, hey, it is in Jesus, through his blood, that we experience forgiveness and redemption, it's no wonder that Paul comes into Romans chapter 6 and he asks a rhetorical question. He says this in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? In other words, well, if every time I sin, 
God's grace comes upon me, shouldn't I just keep on sinning that I get more of God's grace? Because, hey, what? Don't, don't we want more God's grace? Oh, I want more of God's grace. So Paul says, well, if, if the more I sin, the more, more grace it demands, well, shouldn't I keep on sinning? Well, he answers the question in verse 2, and he says, God forbid! What are you thinking? He says, how shall we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? In other words, hey, you've been set free. Why on earth, says Paul, would you continually go back to the very thing that enslaved you? Hey, if you've been set free, if you've been redeemed, if you truly have been forgiven, why don't you walk in the freedom that that provides? Why on earth would you say, you know what, I want to go back and be a slave. Don't be that, says Paul. Why would you do that? Now, if you continue going on, uh, he says in verse 6, He says, knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we should no longer be slaves to sin. Hey, this body of sin has been destroyed. Therefore, we should not become slaves to it. That word destroyed, by the way, I love this. The word actually literally means abolished, but it gives the idea of to render ineffective, Idle, useless, ineffective to put an end to or to put to rest. Do you know what God has done in our lives? He has literally silenced sin in our lives. He has put it to death. He has abolished it. He has caused it to be ineffective and useless. Isn't that amazing reality? That you and I can live as we are called to be as we are called to live as Christians, which is what? Triumphant in freedom and purity and, and holiness. Why? Because of the blood and the redemption of Jesus Christ. That the sin thing in our life no longer has to control you. Hey, you no longer have to shake your fist in God's face in rebellion. You can walk in freedom and peace. This is good news. Smile. Uh, He goes on in verse 12. And he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Hey, if this is true... Do not let sin have kingly authority in your life. Don't let it reign. He says in verse 13, And do not yield your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. He says, hey, you are an instrument. And the word actually means a weapon of warfare. It has this idea that you are a sword. Isn't that good news? I'm a sword. I'm a weapon of warfare. Now, Paul says, do not yield. Do not just hand your life over to sin. Why? Because the moment you hand your life over to sin, do you know what sin does with you? Sin grabs you as a weapon of warfare, marches out into your world, and just produces unrighteousness. He says, rather than that, yield. Turn your life over to God. And what is God going to do? God is going to take you as a weapon of warfare. He's going to grab you like this sword. He's going to march you out into your world and just... Produce righteousness. Do you realize that you do not get a choice of whether or not you're a weapon of warfare? You are a weapon of warfare. Hey, you do not get a choice of whether you're going to yield. You will yield. The question is, whom are you going to yield to? Because you will either yield unto sin, which is only going to produce unrighteousness, or you're going to yield yourself to God, who's going to produce righteousness. So you do not get a choice of yielding. You will yield to something. But you get this whole tenor in the book of of Romans chapter 6. 
there's this idea that if you are in Jesus, I love this idea, if you are in Jesus, you do not need to be pushed around by sin any longer. Hey, you do not have to give in to sin. Hey, you can walk in freedom and victory and triumph. Well, that doesn't look like my life. I mean, what, my life is full of sin still. <gasps> do you realize, biblically, the only way you can ever give in to sin as a Christian is when you yield to it. Sin has no authority in your life. The blood of Jesus has set you free, which means you do not have to live under the tyranny of sin. You can be free. Well, why do I keep on giving in to sin? Well, the best way I can explain it is, uh, here you are. And uh, in Jesus, you recognize that Jesus, in, in a sense, is like a force field. I don't know what the force field sounds like. Something. Anyway, you have this force field around you. <clears throat> and sin is trying to get a hold of it. Like, hey, hey, come here. But sin cannot touch you. Now, up into this point, before Jesus, hey, you've been shackled to sin. And you always had to obey sin. Why? Because you're the slave. But in Jesus, that has been set free. And now you're walking in freedom. And as a person walking in freedom, do you realize sin actually cannot touch you? But it's going to try to woo you. Right? It's standing over there, and it starts playing this loud music, and, you know, it starts doing its song and dance, and it has all this smoke and mirrors and, you know, these balloons, and it bounce houses and skittles falling from the sky. And, I mean, it looks really exciting. <clears throat> and the moment I say, oh, I, I really want to partake in that, I can. If I really want to, I, I can give in to the sin. But how do I have to give in to the sin? I have to take this rope and tie it into a noose and put the noose around my own neck and hand it to sin, saying, here, do something with me. I have to yield myself to it because it can't touch me. Uh, how do you lead this monster of a bull? Have you ever seen a bull up close? These things are huge, oh, huge things. But you realize that you can take a bull and lead it anywhere you want to. How do you lead a bull wherever you want to? Oh, it's easy. You take this little gold ring and you put it in its nose. And you take a rope and you put it through the ring and you just pull on it. And hey, if someone was pulling on your nose, it would hurt a little bit and you would go wherever they pulled you. Well, yeah, that's, that's true about this big, massive animal called a bull. Do you realize that, hey, you can give in a sin. You can. But what do you have to do? You have to put the gold ring in your nose, put the rope around it, hand the other end to sin and say, oh, leave me off. And you have to yield yourself. But Paul is very adamant in chapter 6, and he says, you do not have to yield yourself unto sin. You could yield yourself unto the righteousness of God, and you can walk in freedom and victory and triumph. Why? Because you've been forgiven and, forgiven and redeemed. Uh, he uses the language, I, I love this, uh, he uses this idea of reckon in verse 11. He says, likewise, also consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hey, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. And what's this idea of reckon? It's, it's an accounting term that has this idea of, hey, come into alignment with this truth. Hey, if it is true that you can walk in freedom, hey, if it's true that you can have, free, uh, have life and triumph, hey, bring your life under that authority. Walk in obedience to it and begin to live out this life. That, hey, consider yourself dead to sin. Hey, I no longer am under the authority of sin. I'm under Jesus Christ. And I'm going to bring my life into alignment with that reality. And I'm going to live as if that reality is true. And Paul says, quit giving over to sin. Because you don't have to. Well, what happens if I see sin in my life? Well, what happens if I just, act, you know, I didn't mean to, but I gave myself over to sin? Okay. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Turn to Jesus Christ. 
Yield yourself unto God. Hey, reject the junk of, 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 of sin. And as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 beautifully reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is so faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you have been set free from whatever bonds hold you. So therefore, whatever the junk is in our life, it has to go. Hey, worry, fear, anxiety, lust, greed, lovelessness, selfishness, gossip, whatever. It no longer has a hold on our life. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. This is why it's called good news. So Paul, in our passage in Ephesians, says, Do you not realize that one of the blessings that we have in in Jesus Christ is the fact that through his blood— you and I get to experience forgiveness. We have been pardoned. The blood of Jesus has covered our sins, and now we can walk in triumph. Not only that, but we have been redeemed. Our shackles have been broken. And this is all, he says, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. He just dumped, lavished this upon us. Now, next week, we're going to talk about this whole idea of the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So if you want to study, you can study ahead and study verse 7 and 8. But could we afresh today grab a hold of the reality that in Jesus Christ, I have freedom. In Jesus Christ, I can live out the Christian life. In Jesus Christ, I do not have to live under the tyranny of sin. In Jesus Christ, I can walk in holiness and purity and righteousness. In Jesus Christ, I can be a Christian that I do not have to be pushed around by the enemy any longer. But I have to consistently, continually yield my life unto Jesus Christ and obey him. Don't ever get sidetracked with the temptation and the sin. Hey, do not see all the lights and the bouncy houses and put the noose around your own neck. Hey, do not put the rope in your nose and hand it over to sin. Because sin cannot touch you as long as you're in Christ Jesus. So do not yield unto sin. Live in the freedom and the redemption which Jesus so costly purchased because it cost him his life. But let us live in that reality this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your grace truly is amazing. And Lord, I am consistently dumbfounded by the fact that me, in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of me shaking my fist in your face, Christ died for me. And that you were longing for relationship and intimacy with me, even while I was unholy and unrighteous. And yet you came and you, through your blood, purchased a way. You ransomed my life. You forgave my sins so that I might be holy and blameless, blameless before you in love. That, that I was cleansed and purified so that I could walk in freedom and triumph. So that I could have intimacy and relationship with you. That the whole undercurrent of what you are doing in my life is because you want relationship with me. And so all the barriers that separated me from you, you have torn down so that you can woo and draw me in. Lord, could I live in the reality of my forgiveness? Hey, could I live in the reality of being redeemed? Lord, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of you. That our sins have been forgiven. They've been tossed into the depths of the sea. They've been thrown behind your back. You remember them no longer. Lord, what would it look like if we had a generation of people who were not just yielding their lives over to sin, but who were living in obedience, 
a life of surrender, a life of dependency, a life of pressing in, a life of holiness, a, a life of purity in you. And Lord, I recognize that in my own strength and my own ability that I, I cannot live out the Christian life. I get that. But Lord, you have made the avenue. You have made the way for me to live out the Christian life, which is all about being in you. Of experiencing your forgiveness and your redemption, but then having your life coming through me. Lord, I don't want a facade of holiness where I'm still living in a whole bunch of sin, but having a smile upon my face and looking like I'm holy. Lord, I want true holiness. Lord, I don't want just a facade of righteousness or a facade of purity or a facade of goodness. Lord, I want the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. And Lord, I don't want to be pushed around by sin. I want to find my position in you. I want to find my victory in you. So Lord, may we as believers live under the reality of what it means to be a Christian, which means to be in Jesus Christ and to experience all the riches and all the blessings that that, that pertains to. Lord, we can live the Christian life. Oh, what an amazing reality. And Lord, may this generation once again see men and women who are living out the fullness of the gospel, living out the fullness of holiness and righteousness and purity and truth. May this world become dumbstruck once again by the fact that they see you living in and through our lives. Oh, what an amazing reality. What an opportunity. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for purchasing our lives that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. So thank you. Oh, thank you for our forgiveness and our redemption. We love you. Let's pray this in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.